Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I was thinking about this. During the third week in January, I did something on my Fox Business show, The Claiming Countdown, that I, I don't normally do. And that was state an opinion without really confirming whether I was technically right or wrong. I said, and I don't know if you were watching or you don't remember, but I said that the Chinese were understating the number of deaths and the magnitude of the coronavirus. Obviously, in retrospect, I was right, but we know there are a lot of reasons to criticize the Chinese today. However, there's one thing for which we need to thank a core group of Chinese lab researchers. So these researchers at the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Center Laboratory, what they did early on, very quickly, was identify and then release the world's first genome sequence of the deadly coronavirus that causes COVID-19. They published it on open platforms so that scientists and biopharma companies, anyone could take the ball, run with it, and develop test kits. The value of sharing medical data is right in front of our faces with that example. Could sharing data possibly cure COVID one day? And maybe could it even cure cancer? My Everyone Talks to Liz guest today is working to make that happen. Kathy Giusti is the founder of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation and the co-chair of the Harvard Business School Craft Precision Medicine Accelerator. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know what really bothers me, Kathy, that, that the lab in Shanghai where a team isolated and rushed to finish the genome sequence of this then completely mystery virus on January 5th, two days before China's official announcement of this mysterious pneumonia case in Wuhan has been quietly shut down by the government. I mean, no comment from the People's Republic of China, but you know, the belief is they were annoyed that this brilliant, generous team was releasing it before the government admitted there was a problem. How much does that bother someone like you who is in the business of sharing data to find cures? Well, I think any of us that work on any diseases, you know, whether it's something in a pandemic or it's something in oncology or other diseases, understand the need for a critical mass of data. You, you have to understand the biology of the disease and that means you have to be able to get access to samples, be able to sequence the samples that you have, and then drive that information to be used broadly and disseminated broadly. So the whole area of data sharing is something of a quagmire for every disease out there today. But uh, it's, it's also solving problems by sharing data. I mean, look, we were now able, we, the collective we, were able to create test kits because of this team throwing that genome sequence out there and sort of open sourcing it to say, let's find a solution to this problem, right? 
Absolutely. So the faster you can provide the specimens, the faster you can conduct the sequencing, the faster you make all of that information available, the faster you'll find all the opportunities you have for testing. Now I think the whole area becomes which tests are going to be the best and how do you use data sharing to make sure those high quality tests are the ones that are driven forward. Well, you have been working on data sharing to find answers to the huge question mark that is multiple myeloma. I want our listeners to just know that, you know, cancer has plagued your family, your mother, your dad, your twin sister, all diagnosed with some form of cancer, and you as well. Um, Let's talk about what happened in 1996, because your life changed forever when you went to the doctor for a visit. Yes. At the age of 37, I have to say, um, and I've told this story before, where it was before Christmas, and I remember looking at my husband and saying, you know, we had finally made it, you know, hard-won battle of we'd finally bought our first home, and we had great jobs, and our daughter had just turned one. And then just completely unexpectedly, I got diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And back then, in 1996, myeloma was 100% fatal, and the average lifespan of a patient was just three years. Mm. And Liz, I have to be honest with you, you know, it was funny because there was no um, gray area. It was pretty black and white. There was nothing good going on in in the disease. It had been neglected for decades. And as someone like me who had been working in the pharmaceutical industry, I realized back then that there was very little hope. But to me, I, so I need you to go back to one thing that you said. You said you looked at your husband right before Christmas. You didn't finish the thought. I really need to know. Was it that you looked at him and said, we finally made it? And you almost felt like that scene in, in Ghost where Patrick Swayze has a great night with his fiance and or his wife, you know, Demi Moore. And he says, I just always worry that things are so good that something bad might happen? Yeah, I can't tell you that I was actually thinking at that point in time that anything bad would happen. I mean, I remember putting the tree up and thinking, life is really good. And I remember taking the tree down and thinking, I don't know if I'll ever open this box of ornaments again. So I I was certainly at the age of 37, not expecting this to happen. Um, because also with myeloma, you know, it skews older male African-American. My grandfather had had it, but I certainly didn't think I was the right demographic to get it. But I have learned the hard way that, you know, cancer and pandemics pick their people and they move and um, Mm. you don't always have a choice. At the time, you, as you said, were a young mother and you thought to yourself, I just want to last a couple of years so that I can see this child through, what, kindergarten? I mean, that to me is heartbreaking to think that you you knew there was going to be an end point. And yet here we are, how many years later, you're still here. Yes. At the time, our daughter, Nicole, was one year old. Our son, David, hadn't even been born yet. And I remember thinking to myself, um, if I could live longer than three years, that I might see her off to kindergarten. And I had read that children start remembering their parents around that age. And so that was really my my dream. I think then what happened was as I started to build out the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation and take that on and run it not like a nonprofit, but run it like a business, 
it was pretty amazing um, how we were able to see a number of quick wins and at least get some energy behind me and the team there to keep moving forward. I find that fascinating, looking at it as a business versus a foundation. And you were working in business. You were with companies like Merck and Gillette, Searle, which is now Pfizer. Um, But your dad had been a doctor and you thought about being a doctor. What led you to kind of bifurcate and go into, I guess, consumer and, and pharma and medicine and yet business as well? Yes, I was actually enrolled in medical school and came home and thought my father would be super excited about that, at which point he said, I have no interest in you doing this. I think the medical industry has moved to be very bureaucratic and you're impatient and I think you would be much better off in business. And so I took some time, I was still working at Merck at the time, and I thought about it and I ended up um, deciding to go on to Harvard Business School. And I think, you know, what really has benefited me over the years is that I have a window seat as a patient. I sit and I watch it all the time as a patient and also as someone who is constantly concierging patients. And at the same time, my business mind always sets in to say, if that's a challenge, I know that there's a business solution to allowing the science to happen faster. So, you know, examples of that, Liz, would be when I was first diagnosed, I couldn't believe that there were only four centers even working in the field of multiple myeloma. And that observation and knowledge that I didn't have to go far for a second opinion told me that if I was going to start a nonprofit, I wanted it to be different and unique. I wanted it to be a research foundation that would fund the science and bring everybody together. And, you know, now it's you know, we've raised half a billion dollars for the myeloma field as a nonprofit. But even as a patient myself, when I recognized, you know, doing my own bone marrow biopsies along the way for testing, and the scientists would be right outside the door with red igloo coolers, like to collect those precious specimens. Mm -hmm. I saw that as a business opportunity of that tissue is precious to them. We need to build a collaborative tissue bank which we did with the Mayo Clinic, and it has 4,000 samples. And it kept moving like that. When I saw genomic sequencing was um, starting to move forward, I called the Broad Institute and Eric Lander and said, can we sequence the myeloma genome? And we were the first to sequence our cancer, (laughs) the first to build our own clinical network, which is 25 centers. And now in July, we're daring to launch um, an amazing direct-to-patient effort where we will sequence the genomes of any myeloma patient who wants to be sequenced to share that data in the public domain for our scientists to use, for you know other people to use, getting back to how you started the segment, Liz, which is how do we make sure that all of the information gets shared across the ecosystem that needs it from the scientists in academia to your health systems, to the pharma companies, to all the diagnostic players that you know, as you mentioned earlier, need to do the testing and need to do it quickly. The expression is two heads are better than one, you know, bring in different voices. This is like bringing in all voices, but I want our listeners to know the success that you have actually had because by putting it all together in something that you call compass, which is now, as you said, the largest genomic data set for any cancer that's been put in the public domain, 
for anybody to access. You've helped drive how many FDA treatments to the market for multiple myeloma patients? Myeloma has seen 12 drugs approved, and it's a reflection of our discipline as a community. So I find the MMRF, our organization, is incredibly disciplined about writing our strategic plans, figuring out who our leadership will be, working side by side with us across the ecosystem, and investing every dollar we have um, Mm -hmm. very carefully to make sure that we continue to drive progress forward. So I feel like um, we've all played a role in getting those 12 drugs approved and we never stop, you know, in the world of science, even in myeloma, it's still fatal today. And I don't wake up every day and go, oh, our job is done. We always worry about relapse. And now with the world of immunotherapy taking off, um, we have to understand what is the role of immunotherapy in cancer. We know genomics are very important in terms of identifying the cancer cells, but we know the immune system is equally important in surveilling those cells and making sure that they don't turn into cancer. Right. So, you know, the drug development process never stops. I think I was fortunate that my background, you know, at Merck and Searle and the pharmaceutical industry prepared me well for understanding the importance of the drug development space. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus. They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Enter Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots. This is incredible. So alongside your MMRF venture, you now co-chair the Harvard Business School Kraft Precision Medicine Accelerator. I love that name because it really explains exactly what you're doing. But how did you come together with Bob Kraft and why? Robert Kraft and Jonathan, his son, decided when... Uh, Myra, uh, his wife, passed away from ovarian cancer, that he wanted to give uh, a $20 million endowment to Harvard Business School. And notice he gave it to the business school as opposed to the medical school. And the reason for that was Robert and Jonathan were smart enough to know that business and the incentives of business could drive science and technology faster and find cures faster. 
Once the endowment came to the business school, Dean Noria at Harvard Business School called me and asked if I would be willing to come up and run the Craft Accelerator. So at the same time, ironically, my identical twin sister had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. My mother had melanoma. My father had died of kidney cancer. I realized the importance of working across all cancers and all diseases. And I had always wanted you know, to make sure all diseases learn to be as strong as the MMRF was. I just wasn't sure exactly how to get there. And um, Robert and Dean Noy, I think, gave me the answer. I went up there four years ago, kind of with a white sheet of paper, worked with my co-chair to look at four work streams um, in the precision medicine space. The first was direct-to-patient. The second was data and analytics. The third was clinical trials. And the fourth was investment and venture models. Mm -hmm. And we brought together 300 of these first, second, third movers in that vast ecosystem that you and I just spoke about, academic centers, pharma, health systems, AI companies, payers, And together, we learned how do you move forward um, to drive cures across the diseases. The beautiful work that was done up there with those 300 people continues to move ahead because they identified so many solutions. And a lot of times the ideas, Liz, were if you were looking, for example, at the direct-to-patient space and you wanted to build a registry, what you would end up doing is talking to people like Peloton. It builds a beautiful registry, Marriott, Rent the Runway, Stitch Fix, <laughs> Boston Red Sox, and talk with them about how do you drive engagement of your consumers? How do you talk with them and build frictionless situations for them to provide data to you? So well, the beautiful work of HBS allowed us to do amazing things up there and share every idea we had across every disease. It was unbelievably exciting. I want to ask two questions here. And the first one is, did you run into anyone who didn't want to share? And I say that because everyone is working on the next big thing. And we cover the patent wars and the patent trolls and all this proprietary information that people want to protect and they want to sue each other for patent infringement. Um, In the medical community slash business community where you're dealing with this, did you find that there were some who didn't want to share? I mean, I find it fascinating that the Shanghai lab immediately sequenced the genome and instead of charging it, threw it out there. It was Mm -hmm. like a Hunger Games for who could figure out the solution to at least putting together a test versus, oh, I want to do it first, even if it takes me much longer. Exactly. It is unusual um, because everybody has the incentives that vary depending on where they are in the ecosystem. So I never found when I was working with people in healthcare, and I think this is what you're alluding to too, Mm -hmm. doctors, nurses on the front lines, everybody wants to share. The challenge is as strong as the front line is, the system behind them can be challenging. You know that you have to publish or perish when you work at an academic center. You know, as a pharmaceutical company, you have shareholders and you have to find ways to make money across your investment. So it's not that people don't want to share. It's just that intellectual property is a very strong driver of value and revenue and people have to understand how it works. I find that the best way, and I think this is what we did well at at HBS, was bringing the ecosystem together 
and realizing that everybody was going to have to give. You would never get everything you wanted when you were building a model, that different incentives might have to drive where you go. So an example, Liz, would be when you talked about our Compass study and our willingness to share all of our genomic data. The point of that was we brought the entire ecosystem together and we recognized there might be some give and takes, like did somebody get an early look at the data? Mm. You know, what were going to be the publishing rights about it? How Mm. would we get return on the investment? And that's really how you have to bring everybody together and drive very unique business models to make sure success happens. And what about my second part of this? And that is, do you still find to this day that patients don't want to put their particular information up there? There's so much concern about privacy or or professional retaliation when it comes to companies not wanting to hire you if they think you're sick or they don't, you don't want to get health, you won't be able to get health care. Anything like that that you ran into? I think that everybody has a different risk profile. So when you're looking at diseases like myeloma and pancreatic cancer or brain tumors that are highly fatal, you will find that people are very willing to give up their privacy in the hope of having data shared and finding a cure. And the other thing you find is some people are just, you know, more willing to take risks than others. So I think anytime you develop a direct-to-patient program, you have to be 100% transparent about how you plan on using that data and how it's de-identified and all the issues around that. And I think you have to make the programs voluntary and the patients get to share what they want. So over time, what you'll find is your first movers will come in and the second movers will follow. But you look for those people that are willing to take the risk early on. You're about to launch something called Cure Cloud, which will, as I understand it, allow users to upload their data and then get their genomic sequences. When is that going right. and how will that work? So we have, I have two launches coming up both this summer. The first one is Cure Cloud, where at the MMRF, what we did to democratize the care for our patients was we said we want every patient to be able to have a biopsy, blood biopsy, where they could get their genome sequenced. We developed that blood biopsy with the Broad Institute, which is very unique because patients have been doing bone marrow biopsies all of this time. We then did what's called a CLIA-grade lab test where the information, because it's of the highest quality, gets returned directly to the patient and their doctor. So they have amazing conversations about what they should do with their specific type of myeloma. And then we also put the data in a visualized space so the patients can follow the other patients that look like them. They may have a certain subtype, like a 414 or 1114 in a genomic space. Um, They can see what other patients have done before them and how they have performed. So that's the big democratization of care for our patients across the MMRF side. And I think it really does put the power in the patient's hand and educate them on how to manage their own treatment with their doctors. I think the beauty of the other launch that we have going on in July is the one at Harvard Business School, where we've taken everything we learned across those four years and across all diseases, and we've developed what we call the playbook for any nonprofit to be able to go to one place, one curriculum, and see every tool, every white paper, every case study we used to drive every foundation forward. 
There's 22,000 disease groups out there today, all trying to figure out how to be like the MMRF. And I think the beauty of this playbook is it really does allow them to get off the ground faster and to improve their business planning um, even more quickly. So it's, it's an interesting and busy time because I think what we were trying to do at the MMR was put the power in the patient's hands and what we were trying to do at Kraft and HBS was to make sure we were helping to put the power into the hands of these cure-seeking organizations that are working across the vast ecosystem. I'm really interested to know if we could dovetail to the coronavirus and this massive attempt globally to find a therapy and find a cure, find a vaccine. There's a lot of money involved. And I'm not just talking about spending to try and discover this. Whoever finds the cure or manages to hit that golden spike and say, I've got it, Eureka, we've got the vaccine, that could translate into billions of dollars at this point. How do we make sure, if you were running the whole show, how would you say everyone should proceed and make sure that for the greater good, we somehow share this information and manufacturers can all ramp up and deal with this once it's discovered? Well, I think what you find is it's never necessarily one group, Liz. It's it's the leader of someone who brings in a consortia of people that are willing to work together. And I do believe you're starting to see this already with COVID-19. And I think these are the practices that we have to watch and say, who can help lead these types of programs? So you already know groups like Gates have entered and provided funding Mm -hmm. um, that is helpful. The Rockefeller Foundation is doing the exact same thing. You're already seeing integration between the large labs, along with the academic center and the more local labs. You're already seeing pharma companies working with the biotechs and sharing information in that space. So I think the question becomes, how do you keep these groups learning from each other and moving forward together, knowing at the end of the day, somehow there has to be the intellectual property that gets shared across them? Because they can work on getting public relations right now, which is hugely important. You want to be one of the companies being featured on the news today that, you know, has a vaccine moving, that has a new drug moving, but you also want to make sure that if things move quickly, um, you understand how the IP is going to get figured out. I think the pieces that we're starting to see around COVID-19, that we have to make sure every disease follows, Mm -hmm. is the building out of these consortium models, the sharing across really strong leaders. I think in addition to that, you have to watch the ability to share data across the states, the countries worldwide. Um, And it has to be the highest quality data for us in cancer. It's genomic, it's immune, it's longitudinal. But I think other things we're seeing, Liz, are how fast clinical trials are being um, moved forward now. You know, we're seeing clinical trials starting in weeks. We're seeing the use of telemedicine. We're seeing people use expanded access to move drugs toward clinical trials. We're seeing platform trials. These are all highly innovative ideas. And then I think finally, and one of the most important pieces is the power of the consumer. We're seeing the consumer watching and say, this has to be when patients are dying like this, this has to be the way the health systems start working together. And I think the consumer also knows they have some power in this space. We've seen it firsthand in behavior. 
We're the ones that are stopping the spread. We're the ones that have to obey the rules. Imagine if we start doing that when we understand the implications of diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's. Right. You need to be screened. You need to watch your weight. There's so many things that we could be doing to help prevent a lot of these diseases. And so I hope a lot of the trends that we've seen in COVID-19 that were accelerated um, are here to stay as we move forward to cure other diseases. Well, Shakespeare said it's an ill wind that blows no good. So let's hope that this very frightening wind blows in some good here. You know, we've talked to everyone from Nick Spring of Viral Clear, which is a division of a, of a larger company. They're fast-tracking data and a test with the Mayo Clinic using an antiviral that failed in its original trial for hepatitis C 10 years ago. And he thought to himself, wait a minute, let's dust that thing off. It might work. And in against cultures, it's actually working against COVID cultures. And, and they're hoping to really, within the next couple of weeks, start human trials. And of course, you, you know, Sanofi and Regeneron are banding together. So you're at the forefront. Yeah, you made such a good point, Liz. I think one of the best things that we've seen with COVID-19 is the off-label use of drugs and people really trying to understand how do we use data? How do we prioritize which drugs should be moving to trial? And again, trying to find the patients for these trials and really using technology to make sure that we accrue them quickly. It's been pretty amazing. And again, all these best practices need to be documented and brought forward for all diseases. Kathy Juisty, it's a pleasure and good luck to you. We're, we're cheering you on. You're welcome. Thank you. What would I tell you guys? You know, I never bring you anyone who isn't going to or hasn't yet changed the world. And these people, we hope that you take their inspiration and you run with it and you reach for your dreams and you fight hard for what you believe may make your world and maybe even the rest of the world a better place. Thank you so much for tuning in to Everyone Talks to Liz. And by the way, we've been killing it Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown. The markets are a fascinating, living, breathing creature lately that I've just never, I mean, in my, am I embarrassed to say, 22 years now of covering business news, never seen anything like this. So please stay tuned. We're watching your money. We're helping you preserve it, grow it, take care of it. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.